0: Chapter 17 of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 H. Dulce Dykinson. Isn't my new name sweet? This was the ending to a letter bearing the USA postmark, which Amy read complacently, sitting one evening in early spring on a long garden seat, placed in the darker, more overgrown side of the garden and under the open windows of the drawing-room. The twilight soothed her. She was a moral titan at rest, an atlas with the weight of a whole British household on her little sloping, slightly curved shoulders. The entire winter had been occupied with Dulce and Dulce's doings. There had been a delay in the fulfilment of her engagement with Dyconson, but it was not occasioned by money difficulties, and Dulce, once her fortunes had taken this desirable turn, grew dulcet, like her name, and placable, and purchased no more dogs or mongooses. Her wedding had taken place in February. Amy and Erina had been among her bridesmaids. I am far too old, Amy had protested, but Dulce, who was good stuff and grateful, had insisted. She had actually been married for her money, through Amy's instrumentality, and she knew it, but meant, notwithstanding the ugly fact, to be very happy. It was all right if a little unromantic, affairs having arranged themselves satisfactorily on a cash basis, Dykinson had come back and resumed his interrupted courtship like a lamb. He had had the courage of his pocket and his place, and Dulce on her side had obliged him by getting rid of the idol from Benin and the mongoose, which both smelt disagreeable and wearing stays, and waving her hair. Though Amy was delighted with the letter, she was so weary to-day that she let the hand that held this joyful guarantee of Dulce's sanity hang down by her side in a way that expressed her extreme lassitude. She was tired of being cook. Edith's protege, and the rescued remnants of her morals, had gone down in a blaze of domestic complications and village scandals. Hodges had left, too, Her angry father had taken Annie Dawes away four days ago, and Mr. Dand had engaged to do his best to procure a substitute in Old Fort. Meantime, Amy's back ached, and her cheeks burned, and she thought of the kitchen fire as an immoral agent, and wondered not at all that cooks as a race were heady and lax, and ultra-emotional. She had often noticed these wretched guardians of the hearth, crawling from their reeking kitchens into areas to breathe. She understood now the weariness that craves stimulants, or at least air. For the last three days she had eaten scarcely anything, and water from the spring was not cold enough. As pants the heart, she said to herself, so do I, for a cook. Those poor, greedy old things, I can only think of them just now as so many stomachs. She was alluding to two early Victorian shapes who wandered in mushroom hats and carrying preposterous art reticules through the shadowy groves and alleys of the Swarland garden. They appeared and disappeared alternately in slow procession, intercepted now and again by this or that clump of hollies, as in a dream of Verlaine. It was March, but warm as May. Yet Amy was careful. Across the wide lawn, whose outermost rim, was lost in mystery and night a white-robed nurse and child hurried in by amy's order to the sheltering lights of the house which burst into radiance one by one as the servants within lit them amy did not approve of the child being out after dusk so she refrained from calling it to her side and so delaying the folding of the lamb edith dand was strumming in the drawing-room whose open windows gave on to the back of the bench where amy was sitting She was happy delivering her soul. Amy had no music in her, so Mrs. Dan's wrong notes were of small consequence. Presently the master of the house drew up his great silent motor in front of the door. A servant came out, messages and parcels were given. Then, still wearing the great fur coat Amy had once worn, he came up and sat down on the seat at some distance from her. The nurse and child had gone in, and one of the old women who took an hour and a half to dress for dinner. The flicker of Mrs. Bowman's strong violet skirt up an alley was all that remained of chaperonage except Edith Dan's music. "'Have you got one?' Amy asked without moving. "'Yes. She's coming in to-morrow evening.' "'Is she a better cook than me?' "'She has more testimonials to that effect, but I doubt if she will please me as well.' Besides, she asks too high wages. Yes, you are both a gourmand and a miser. Her fatigue made her careless, rude. On the other hand, the day's work had taken the retort, courteous and uncourteous, out of him. They both sat in weary, unqualified silence at different ends of the bench. The smell of the privet-bush beside them was almost too overpowering to be pleasant. She wondered if he really liked it he was very sensitive to odours, or pretended to be. The uneasy, unconvincing chords that were ground out of the instrument in their rear certainly annoyed him, for he groaned. "'My wife, pouring out her whole soul at the piano!' "'Some people can,' said Amy, a little scornfully. "'But not you and I, eh? We keep our souls to themselves, our deep, patient, divided souls.' "'Divided?' said she dreamily. "'Surprised, but not annoyed. "'Yours and mine. "'A pair, if ever there was one. "'But if—' "'But the quarrelsome word,' remarked Amy, "'lazily heading him off personalities. "'If the peacemaker. "'You can keep me in order without quoting Shakespeare, I think,' he said. "'Why on earth should you be afraid of talking about your innocent, "'clean-living soul with me? "'I am perfectly safe. "'I am old, set, sane.' not a counter-jumper, simmering with sexual vanity. I can talk of visions without wanting to incorporate them then and there, of hopes without attempting to realize them. I don't know what you mean. Don't be so unimaginative. I mean you can trust me not to slide along this bench and put my arm round you. You are very tired with cooking my dinner for me, too stupid with physical fatigue to have your wits about you too tired to resist me, in fact. So you are safe from me, and you know it.' "'Much obliged, I am sure,' said Amy, in her fatigue and uneasiness, mechanically reverting to one of the current forms of rebuff in use in her earlier surroundings. "'It is only surface commonness,' he assured her cheerfully, "'makes you answer me like that. You have got a good way beyond Surbiton by now.' The truth is, you are not in the least afraid of me or anything I may say or do. And as for the ordinary manifestations of a man's interest in a woman, you know I am not the sort of man to give way to them. If ever I do embrace you, Amy, we won't play at it. I am a raffiné, I have my own code of self-indulgence. I say not quite with the poet gay, more ordinary lips may serve people for kissing. With you I don't know how it is, but I am content to sit here in the shadow of my old house, with my belongings all round me, and listen to the little angry scrunch of the gravel under your heel. Amy suppressed that gesture. He knew she was cross then. Smell the sour smell of privet, and stare at that dark clump of arborvitae with the tobacco plant white against it, and wonder at the absurdly patchy arrangement of the things that matter. If they do matter, "'Who cares whether you and I come together or not? Not nature, at any rate. Still, the clumsy arrangement serves for want of a better, and I have sworn, you know, never to touch the pendulum.' His eyes rested on her tenderly, as Edith's rested on her flowers, and Dulce's on her tortoise, the same glance pressed into so many different services. "'I look at you now,' he continued, and note how nicely you come in the picture. I would not take you out of it for a moment, or attempt to vulgarize you in any way. Vulgarize me? It would be vulgar to corrupt you, wouldn't it? Unnecessary, too, to break up this lovely peace and let the world into our affairs. No one should ever be permitted to know who is in love with who. Blatancy ruins all. And to get on to the other side— To gain another platform or resting place, one has to go through so much red tape. No more quiet evenings like this, but interviews, lawyers' letters, agitating posts. No, no, I am yours, certainly I am. You are the right woman for me. I have settled that long ago. But all the same, I prefer to let well alone. My goodness, said Amy, how you talk! there's a certain amount of discomfort certainly some unsatisfied yearnings hauntings of a world of joys not realized all the emotions are here in fact but in tolerably stable equilibrium amy from being uneasy turned to laughter she was amused not disquieted no real lover ever said such things her merriment gentle low and childish was reassuringly heart whole HE TRULY AT THAT MOMENT DESIRED HER HAPPINESS, AND HE SMILED AT HER. BUT IT IS ALL TRUE ENOUGH. I AM NOT TALKING FOR EFFECT. I AM TOO COMATOSE FOR THAT, AND SO ARE YOU. I AM PERMANENTLY TIRED OUT WITH COLLECTING MONEY, MY LOW FAD. I OVERWORK MYSELF AS A MEANS TO A MEAN END. THAT'S WHY I DON'T FEEL INCLINED TO ALTER ANYTHING, EVEN IF YOU DID. "'I dote upon peace, and it is very nearly perfect peace here, except for my wife's damned untidy piano playing. And I can endure that too, for it puts you at your ease.' "'All the same, I know what I ought to do,' said she wistfully. "'What?' "'Go into her.' "'This isn't a ball that you need go and seek your chaperone. And you are not a child, Amy.' "'I suppose you are shocked at my talking coolly "'of matters that you would prefer left in the clouds. "'You would like me to go subtly about convincing you "'that I admire you, in the ordinary way. "'Compliments, glances, and perhaps presents. "'Nothing overt in the way of words "'that you are sorry to have to resent for form's sake. "'I know you all, but that isn't my way. "'See this, Amy, you have unfortunately come "'to be boxed up in a lonely country house.' "'with one rather odd sort of man who calls things by their right names. "'There's no escape for you from any form I choose to cast my liking for you into. "'I am king here. "'Be prepared for any development of the affair except one, "'and that you needn't be afraid of. "'But I confess I am a little disappointed in you. "'It's always the same. "'Scratch a bohemian, and you find a conventional.' "'Amy half rose.' this last insinuation truly offended her. She had thought herself so broad, so tolerant of his absurd lucubrations. No, stay, I mean no manner of harm. And you control the situation, don't you? I am very biddable, not at all unruly. Here I am, exiled to the farthest end of the bench, and I undertake to come no nearer. My dear girl, do think of it for a moment, and you will see that I am treating you quite fairly." honestly the ways of men and women are not nearly so complicated as novelists will have it in the interests of their trade just as lawyers try to persuade you that the law is an ass and that they are indispensable women if treated squarely as i am treating you respond all right you grasp my attitude towards you or if you don't i'll explain more fully no don't said she half afraid half eager you know it I was perfectly explicit with you the day you came into my study, and forced me to give my daughter to young Dykinson on pain of losing you. Yes, I prefer you to any other person in the world. I would rather spend my life with you than anyone else. I feel as a man feels toward the woman he desires. Think your mouth beautiful and want to kiss it, but I also prefer to keep you as you are. An inmate of my house, a constant source of joy to me and able to meet my wife's eyes. You could not bear it, if it were otherwise. That's your point of honour. You see, I know it. I should have to take you away, and I am not going to, even if you would come. Have you observed, Amy, that, while making you a handsome present of my sentiments towards you, I have not so much as attempted to ascertain yours to me?' "'I don't know them,' she murmured sweetly. She was lulled into quiescence by the knowledge that no amorous decision, no conventional ultimatum was expected of her. She was both flattered and pleased. She had not consciously expected this declaration, yet perhaps her woman's soul had been aware all the while, had even hoped. Amy was too wise to consider herself responsible for the dark doings of the spirit in anyone, to try to account for the crude combinations of the atoms, Of will and predilection she was only blessedly sure that her virtue was not going to be put to the proof and that no trial of her savage and primitive sense of loyalty towards the lawful wife whose stormy playing brooded over this interview was contemplated she sat there quite still a white heavily posed yet lax figure with soft rounded shoulders ready to fold inside a man's protecting arm "'No,' Dand went on, answering his last question himself. "'Of course you don't know your own feelings. "'Very few women do, unless they are pedants "'and dishonest with themselves. "'You are neither. "'I will tell you what I know of your emotions "'and their probable course. "'It will amuse us. "'I am vain, as you know, of my professional knowledge, "'so gratify your professor by listening to him. "'Well, your moods will change and waver, and intensify and diminish, but of this I am sure, it will not be indifference that you feel for me, more possibly hatred, temporary or permanent. How do you mean? I am interested. Well, you are to imagine your more feminine self coming to resent my beautiful attitude of reserve. Suppose woman's innate recklessness and curious love of extremes, that she is pleased to style the lust of self-sacrifice, gets uppermost. Women like you, the least sensual possible, but still sensual, women who live by their heads, not their hearts, are subject nevertheless to bursts of natural feeling. Wafts from the pit, bless you. Then we get subconscious huffs, hysterical rancors, physical clamourings of nature denied. Don't be offended, you are not responsible, poor patient. What you have got to consider is, that this isn't the most important part of you, or of anyone's economy. All you have to do is to keep a cool head, hold on, don't chuck it. Every emotion has its day and then dies down, and is quiescent. But the need of sympathetic companionship that you can't get rid of, and a sense that you have somehow rather mysteriously attained to it, endures. If I can bear it, you can. AMY what a gentlewoman you are, to listen to me patiently like this, and not protest against my fatuity. Why don't you snub me, and declare that I am nothing to you, and never will be? Most women who knew how to protect themselves would. Give me your hand. She rose, and gently, like one in a utopian dream of perfection, laid her hand in his. A crashing cord, dealt by the wife within, Coincided with the ratification of a compact that did not appal Amy and from which she had nothing to fear, since it neither menaced her peace or that of any one else. End of chapter seventeen recorded by Lisa Reichert.